0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And we'll be looking at a passage in Isaiah 44 for our sermon, focusing on Isaiah 44, verse 6 to 8. We'll read around to that passage, first of all, verse 1 to 20. This, this chapter, in general, is about idolatry and how the people of God are to know that there is only one God in whom they may trust. That's the Lord God, And that it is folly to make idols. We hear God's word then in this chapter, Isaiah 44, starting in verse one. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So far from Isaiah, then we'll also turn to Revelation. Very last book and the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. In Isaiah, we heard the Lord Speak of himself as the first and the last. And in Revelation 22, we hear the Lord Jesus take those same words into his mouth. Revelation 22, verse 12 to 17. And the Lord speaks and says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. So far from Revelation. Our text this morning for the preaching is Isaiah 44, verse six to eight. We'll read those words again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come, and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old, and declared it? and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Beloved in Christ, one of my favorite Bible stories is in 1 Kings 18. That's the chapter where God has a showdown with Baal, a dramatic contest on the top of Mount Carmel. You remember how Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a competition. Come up the mountain, he says. Bring two oxen for sacrifice and wood to burn on the altar, but no fire. And bring your best voice for praying because you're going to need it. And then you shall call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire He is God. The challenge is accepted, and the competition begins. Hour after hour, 450 prophets of Baal cry out to their God, trying to get his attention. They yell, they scream, they cut themselves with knives, and Elijah begins to mock them and their God, who obviously isn't available at the moment. Maybe he's meditating. Or traveling or taking a nap. Though the prophets cry loud and long, there is only silence. I love verse 29, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. After that, it's Elijah's turn. And though the altar and the wood are drenched with buckets of water, and though Elijah is just one lonely prophet on the mountain who offers just one short prayer to God. The Lord's answer is definitive. He sends his fire and it consumes not only the oxen, but the wood and the altar and all the water around it. The people are stunned. They are moved by the glory of God and they make this enthusiastic confession. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's a story with a lot of connections to our chapter because Isaiah 44, which we read, is all about the difference between the true God and false gods. Just like in 1 Kings 18, here God reveals his glory and he also brings this biting sarcasm against idols. And like in the time of Elijah, there's an urgency for Isaiah to bring this message. God's people were seeking idols. Judah was expecting great things from their foreign gods when all they can really offer is silence and death. Instead, the Lord's people should delight in the true God. That's how our text begins, with a reminder about who God is. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. We could explore this morning each of those four titles. The Lord, the King of Israel, Redeemer, Lord of hosts. Each of those names reveals something unique about God. He's saying to us, the Lord is, remember who I am. Know how great I am. Be sure that you can always put your trust in me. But we won't focus on those four names. We'll focus today on a different title, but which I preached to you on this theme, the only God says, I am the first and I am the last. We'll look at that under these points, the first, the last, and the only. Well, before the creation of all things, there was only God. Without any beginning, without any interruption, and for times that cannot be measured, there was only God. That boggles the mind. Existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bound together in love, dwelling in beauty and perfection, needing nothing, being everything, God was. And then the one who is without any beginning made a beginning. God spoke into the darkness, and there was light. With the word of his mouth and the power of his hand, God made the entire universe come into existence out of nothing. And all created things still depend on God for their life. Without the God who gave the universe its beginning, everything would collapse in less than a millisecond. But in faithfulness, God keeps it going. God upholds everything that he has made. God is eternal. He is self-sustaining. God is sovereign. God is infinite in power. And beloved, these are not abstract truths that you can find in a dusty book of theology these truths about God are real they have everything to do with how we live and how we die they also teach us about what ought to be at the center of our life if God is the beginning and the source and the foundation of all things should we not worship God and learn to trust in him with our whole heart. And if God is the origin of everything in the universe, where does that leave every other God? What does God's eternity and strength say about every idol that we cherish, every obsession that we are restlessly chasing? They're not everlasting, they're not capable of anything. All other gods are formed by the hands of sinful men who in themselves have their life only from God. We're talking about idolatry because of the context of our chapter. Our text comes as part of this long charge that God brings against Judah And Judah, with her whole platoon of idols, they had Baal and Ashtoreth, Molech, the queen of heaven, the list was lengthy. And here God challenges them to compare the Lord with all those other gods. Who is like me? Verse seven says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. For do any of these other gods actually communicate with their believers? like the Lord does, do they actually do anything? Like he did on Mount Carmel, here the Lord God asks for any contender to stand in competition with him. Speak up, he says, if you're able. Show me what you can do. God has had enough of his people's unfaithfulness in the days of Isaiah, and so he presses them If these gods of yours are really so great, let them show themselves. Let them prove their worth. And if they could, if they could show themselves in some way, maybe Israel could be excused for worshiping and trusting in them. But first, God says, think of who God is. I am the first and I am the last Besides me, there is no God. God says that he is the first. God here points us back to Genesis, that book of beginnings. God recalls when this world started and when there was only God. He is the first. That is, he is the one before all creation, before all human history. As we said already, if God is the beginning then everything else is secondary, derived, inferior. If God is the first and the original, then every other God is just a knockoff, recycled, repurposed from the good world that God has made. You worship the sun, Isaiah says, why would you? God made the sun and the moon. You worship your dead ancestors. Why? It was God who gave them life. You expect to find a refuge in your wine or to get happiness from sex or a refuge in your gold. Why would you if God made all those good things in the first place? They can only ever be imitation gods all of them have been created. They have nothing to give that God the Creator cannot give us and what he can give us in so much greater and truer ways. As the first, as the beginning of all things, God is without rival, without competition, Maybe that's easy enough for us to accept this morning. It's easy if we're talking about Baal or Ashtreth or even about Buddha or Allah. We all know that those aren't gods. They haven't been around from the start. They've never accomplished anything. We know they are only the invention of sinful minds. These gods, they're only the products of the twisted human heart. But brothers and sisters, let's try to apply this to our own lives. When you search yourself, your life, are there any gods that you've set up, idols that you've tucked away into the corners? And let's look carefully, for we all agree that God is the only true God, yet we are still just a moment away from putting our trust in things beside him. Secretly, we still expect from other places and other things the kind of blessings that only God can give, gifts like peace and joy and fulfillment. When I have a decent job and a bit of talent, when I have some friends and a loving family and money in the bank, Almost at once, I begin to feel comfortable with all this. Like the future is bright, like here on this earth, I've finally found my refuge. And then I've forgotten already it's all from God. He's the giver. All these good things only spring from God, the overflowing fountain. That means that none of these things, these good things in my life, can save or redeem. The Lord is the first. To turn to the gift instead of the giver is among the very worst of sins. We're being moved by the glory of another. A glory which should belong to the Lord alone. But there is more. For this great name of God doesn't just reveal the folly of trusting in idols. More positively, you could say, it's a call for all of us to rest fully in the Lord's faithfulness. In the time of Isaiah, Judah was troubled. It was a troubled land. They were concerned about war and exile. That's what was in the forecast for all of them. A 100% chance of ruin And destruction judah all knew it they dreaded the day when the babylonians would come all the good that they had would be taken away listen then to how god encourages judah in their fear verse 8 fear not nor be afraid have i not told you from of old and declared it the first part of that is god's favorite command not to be afraid Judah was fearing what the future would bring, war and exile, and that's exactly why they looked to their idols. That's exactly why they turned to earthly allies. In their terror, they were searching for any kind of security, any kind of hope, any insurance against that unknown future. And beloved, that's a lesson for us that Our idols are so often found right next to our fears. Because we fear something, we search for what can relieve that fear, for what can reassure our heart. If you fear being poor, or if you fear loss of creature comforts, you might well let money become your idol. Or if you fear being overlooked or underestimated by other people, you might let success and accomplishment become your highest need. I want them to praise me and to know me. Or fear of being alone means that you might idolize your family, idolize friendship. When you fear criticism... The approval of other people becomes king. So many fears we have, so many idols, but God says, do not fear, I am the Lord. And the second part of that in verse eight is God's reassurance, him saying, have I not told you from of old and declared it? Judah was dreading their exile and so God Tells him that he actually planned it long ago. He has always known that it would happen this way. He has always known it because he is from the beginning. Don't be scared that this is out of God's hands. That too, beloved for us, is a comforting truth. God is not surprised by the events of this world or our lives. He has declared it from the beginning. Every cause, every effect, it all originates in his perfect will. Even before our lives began, God knew all about us, knew our names and where we would go and how we would struggle and how we would be blessed. We are totally secure in him because he is the first, the cause and the origin of everything. And here Isaiah is quietly pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is very striking that this name for God in the book of Isaiah is a name that is later claimed by the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation. There we hear the risen Lord declare, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Verse 13 of Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the and the n that's the same name but with the volume turned way up jesus says i am the alpha and the omega you probably know that those are the first and the last letters of the greek alphabet compare it to our english saying from a to Z." likewise for a greek speaker alpha and omega meant the whole gamut Across the widest spectrum, Christ is saying that in Him we have everything that we need. And in Him we have it for as long as we need it, even forever. Christ, your Savior, is eternal and almighty, the perfect Savior, the unchanging Lord. That means that You can go to him for grace that will always be sufficient. Go to Christ for a strength that will never fail you. Let this encourage you. The same person who brought us salvation is now governing all things in heaven and on earth for the sake of his people. The same person who laid down his life for us now holds our life in his hands. Christ began our redemption at the cross and now he'll see our redemption through to the perfect end. Hebrew says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we can put our trust completely in him. Well, that's the part of God's name, the first, then the last, our second point. Beloved, do you know anything about fatigue? Not just being tired, but chronically tired, and not just in our bodies, but somewhere deeper. We can begin to have that when it seems like life doesn't have a point. What is going to come of all my labor and stress and suffering? And when we are aimless and tired of life, when we wonder what is our destination, God speaks again and God tells us, I am the last. That is, I am the conclusion. I am the good end of all things. God has a purpose for his creation and aim for his people. He's got a complete plan, we said, from start to finish. And so even today, he knows the good goal that we're moving toward. What is the purpose of all things? Well, God said it in the previous chapter. We didn't read that, but if you look at chapter 43, verse seven, there God, is speaking of everyone who is called by my name 43 verse 7 whom i created for my glory whom i formed and made under underline that middle phrase god created us and saved us for his glory that's a profound truth for our lives Now I know we can say that so often it becomes a cliche, it loses its meaning, it's all for God's glory. But if we truly understand that and believe it, that purpose changes everything. It's all for God's glory. Which means, says God to the people of Judah, I don't just know that you're gonna go into exile, I also know how it will end and that it will not last forever. And I also know that the result of it will be glory for my name. That God will be honored among the nations. That was important for Isaiah to say because in that time there were many haters who said that God, the God of Israel, had fallen asleep. He had lost his power. He had broken his word especially when the exile happened. Think of how the exile reflected so badly on God. It seemed like God had given up on his people. But then when the Lord brings his people home, the nations all, they have to acknowledge this, God is a great God and it's all for his glory. The God who says, I am the last, is working out his good plan in this world and in us. God is bringing all things toward their perfect conclusion, their total restoration. If you read ahead in Isaiah, Isaiah will tell us about that in the closing chapters of this book. For instance, you can read in Isaiah 65 about how it all ends, the new heavens and the new earth. Then, says Isaiah, the former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind, but God will rejoice in his people. In Zion, there will be great joy. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. That's the beautiful end to which God is working. He is the first and he is the last and he's gonna bring it there. Once again, the Lord Jesus Christ gives the same message. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the end. I am the last. And With that name, Christ sets us at ease. He says to us, I know where it's all going. I know how all this will be for God's glory. It's an incredible thought that when something happens to us in our life, good or bad or a setback of some kind, Christ has already seen how it will work out for his glory and for our good. When you have pain and misery, Christ says, I know what will come of it. When you make your own little plans and goals, I know what the outcome will be. If you're suffering or if you're prospering today. I know exactly what these things are for. The God who is the end, Christ who is omega, he has seen every conclusion. For a people like us who can't see past the end of today, that's so good to remember. We have no idea how things will turn out But Christ does. He's already at the end of this year. And he's already at the end of the following year. He knows the very moment when our life here on this earth will end. Knows the hour, the second. He knows it. And so he tells you there's no need to trust in anything or anyone but him. Even at the end, Christ is there. Even now, the author of our salvation is preparing the final chapter. That gives our lives stability. Stability to know God has His wise and loving hand in everything that happens. He faithfully keeps His purpose and goal in view. The greater glory of His name. That also gives our lives purpose. You have a purpose this week. You don't have to be aimless. You don't have to wonder if any of this makes any difference. Neither do we need to live for ourselves in the pursuit of our own happiness. Instead, our mission is clear. I'm here for the glory of God alone. I'm here to make God great and to make much of him. Whatever blessings I have, Whatever sufferings, whatever time or opportunity, let me channel it in one direction. Let my life be ruled by one principle. Does this serve the end of God's greater glory? Am I living for him alone? Well, third point, if God is the first and the last, then he is also the only. As God declares in verse 6, besides me there is no God. God says this because of the spirit of idolatry that was infecting Judah at the time of Isaiah. They were fearful, we said, so God's people were looking for places of rest, anywhere they could find it. But in contrast to the Lord, the God of Israel, the Redeemer and the Lord of hosts, The gods of the nations are nothing to cling to. There is no other God. So now that Isaiah has presented the glory of God, it's not very hard to point to the stupidity of making idols. The next section from verse 9 to verse 20 of our chapter is an extended mockery of idols and a mockery of the people who make them. Something you learn from this next section is that it's actually a complicated process, making an idol. You have to find the right tree, maybe even plant one and wait years for it to grow. You have to search out the right building materials. You have to measure it with a pencil, fashion it with your tools, carve it, then overlay it with precious metals. It's difficult to make a god for yourself. And all this effort is really absurd, says Isaiah, when the true God is so near, just waiting to be approached. One of the main characters in that section is the ignorant fellow who takes a section of wood from the forest in order to make his God. He does this, but he fails to see the disconnect the lunacy of what he's done. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He doesn't see how silly it is that half the wood he used to make his God and the other half he used to cook his lunch. So, of course, an idol lacks all power to help you, to speak to you, to save you from death. Isaiah 44 is a bit of biblical humor. We laugh at the foolishness of Judah's idle craftsmen. But beloved, let's let the word of God do its work on us. See if you can turn a bit of that scorn on yourself. Don't we, too, find our deepest joy in things that are lifeless? Things that are as dull as cars or boats or homes or clothing? Don't we, too, act like created things is all that we're going to get? Don't we act like passing experiences just moments in time like those things are going to give meaning to our life don't we all do this devote excess amounts of daily attention to trivial stuff things that we've made really important activities that bring no actual benefit we obsess over the gifts But along the way, we forget the giver. We love the creation, but we neglect the creator. And then we miss out on the beauty of life in communion with God. We miss out on the wonder of walking in fellowship with Christ. It's just as foolish as those craftsmen in chapter 44. We accept a lie. We accept a delusion. And yet we all still do it. We expect way too much from things that cannot deliver. Instead of continuing in this folly, let's remind ourselves about the glory of the one true living God, Who is like the Lord our God? What thing or person or experience can ever take His place? We get to know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think of all that God is. Think of all that God has done, even laying down His life. For sinners like us. He is the God. Who sees us. Who hears you. Who speaks to you. Who cares for you. Is there a God besides God? Isaiah says there is no rock. I know not any. Just one God can save us. Restore us and bring us to our true home. So we can love Him and trust Him and gladly confess Him. We should be moved by the glory of the Lord, just like the people of Israel on Mount Carmel were once moved. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He alone is God. Beloved, you know this God. So be confident in Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end, the only God. Amen.